Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, well, not recently, but normally, as always, I'm joined by our panelists, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. Obviously, I'll address the elephant in the room. I haven't been on the last few episodes. It's great to be back um, to cover the wonderful Chicago White Sox team. Um, obviously, just missing the playoffs by the hair of our teeth. But gentlemen, how are we doing? Yeah, uh, good to have you back, Duke. It was a fun few episodes, but certainly good to have the full crew back together for what feels like some of the last few times before we get to watch teams go deep into the postseason, something we haven't seen in a while. So, yeah, it's nice to have the core crew back for sure. And from a sports standpoint, I actually have been enjoying the the playoffs last year. I didn't really watch them that much. I was so annoyed by the White Sox, but this year, maybe I just got saw it coming earlier, but they're fun games. They've, they've had some cool, cool finishes and it's, it's fun to watch. I'm hoping that continues. Although I don't want the twins to, advance any more than they have i've been watching the games a ton to be honest with you um but i've been following all the stupid arguments over um like is this the right format for the playoffs and stuff like that and it's annoying but it's something i wish my team could be contributing to at the end of the day which is the unfortunate part of it all i'm kind of i'm still at that point where i'm like i'll eventually probably later in the postseason start watching the games i'm just kind of i need to take that step back i'm like let's recap this season let's and let's just be done with it for like a little bit yeah i think it's a level of frustration that is is starting to settle in yeah i mean uh the minnesota twins won a playoff game so i mean it's it's really weird around baseball right now but you know, I'm, I'm with you guys definitely from what i've been able to catch from the uh of the playoffs so far i've really enjoyed Really enjoy what I've seen, specifically from the Arizona Diamondbacks. You know, I, I, I'm so big on like an underdog type team in the playoffs, especially taking down an, a giant like the L.A. Dodgers. Well, they haven't taken them down yet, but it's looking really good for Arizona right now. Um, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm a Chicago White Sox fan. So like seeing an underdog in the playoffs kind of try kind of roll through some of these teams. It's, it's really been cool to watch. Um, I think they've they've got a lot of really good homegrown talent in Arizona, and I thought I thought they made some really good moves at deadline. So that's been awesome to watch. Um, I you know even as bad as the White Sox are, and the White Sox are normally bad, so I still find a way to enjoy the MLB playoffs every year. So I'm glad to see you guys are enjoying it too. Um, we got quite a bit to cover, basically making fun of ourselves in this episode, but before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also be sure to check out the website, SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th. You know, listen, I understand it's going to be a long off season. You're not going to want to miss any of it. So be sure to cover all the info if you're just listening to this podcast for the first time after the season I, I don't know what i don't know what you're doing with your life but i'm glad that you're here um so obviously tough season for the chicago white Sox. no other way around it you know losing uh losing as much as we did was pretty brutal um i think there's a lot of storylines coming out of it there's but there were a hundred storylines plus 
end the season. Obviously, the uh, the firing of you know Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn was obviously like uh, probably the milestone of the season, I think. But um, you know, a lot of different a lot of different storylines. One of the ones, I guess, at the end of the season, you know, because we've divulged in a lot of them throughout the course of the year. Um, TA7 not playing in the last game was something that uh, obviously you you see from the, the last floaters on White Sox Twitter. You know, obviously it was something that a lot of them wanted to discuss. And they uh, they were speculating about what that was all about, whether we had seen the last of uh, Tim Anderson in a White Sox uniform. Um and I'll I'll let you I'll let you open this up, Jordan. Have we seen the last of Tim Anderson in a White Sox uniform? And do you think that there was something to him not playing in the last game of the season? A lot of people wanted to compare it to Abreu not playing the last game last season, and I think it's fair, but it's not. I don't really know. I, I don't read too much into that situation. I read more into the the ultimate question of whether or not he's coming back. And, you know, we haven't been on as a crew for like the past three episodes. I think I was missing, then Duke, you were missing. So I never got to share my thoughts on TA coming back. And I told Duke that, or excuse me, I told Nick this a few episodes back. I was shocked at how easily you guys came to the conclusion that TA should come back next year. I do not think we're at a point where it should be necessarily a given. And I think there's a better chance than ever that this, that that could have been the last we've seen Tim Anderson was the game before um, the finale on the season. He just, he hasn't played well in, in a lot longer time frame. It's been a year and a half at this point. Like the last we saw him playing really well was the beginning of 2022. And I think it becomes a legitimate argument of everyone says, oh, he'll bounce back, he'll bounce back. Based on what, though? Like, I feel like there weren't any things to point to in this season that make me feel like no 10 or 15 game stretch. I mean, we were clowning Yohan Moncada for having a great stretch down the season like it doesn't matter. Tim Anderson didn't have something like that to point to. Even when he was solid at the beginning of the season, it was still a 700 OPS player. Is that worth 14 million? And on this team that has so many problems right now, I don't know. I think we're at a point though, where the White Sox haven't been committal to having TA moving forward. I, I don't remember many reports where TA himself has been asked about whether or not he will be back. I think you put that all together. I think if I had to guess, I would say more likely that he's not back now than he is though. I don't think it's some drastic, Oh, he's gone for sure. I just don't think it's some sort it's a $14 million option. And I don't think the last year and a half has given anything that's told me it's worth it right now. I don't know. It's a tough question, but I I'm leaning towards it might have been the last we've seen of Anderson. Yeah, it's tough because when you talk about, oh, he didn't have a great stretch, that's true. And I think a lot of people will point out the fact that he hit 290-something in the second half. And maybe he did, but he also hit for pretty much zero power. So like you said, Jordan, even over that stretch, you were talking about the beginning of the season, but I believe the same is true of the end of the season. He had like what would be a nice stretch if he hit even like a few doubles here and there. But it was just all singles and no walks, and the defense got worse as, as it has the last couple of years. So 
I think ultimately it comes down to what the White Sox are going to be next year. We've talked a lot on this podcast about how Jerry Reinsdorf has said next year will not be a rebuilding year. We're going to contend, blah, blah, blah. I've noticed recently that Chris Getz, when he's asked questions like that by the media, he doesn't even acknowledge that part of it. He just gives very generic answers. He he is not saying anything about next year being a contending year, which is fascinating because you don't think Jerry Reinsdorf would have hired him if they didn't share the same vision, but at the same time, maybe Getz got in Reinsdorf's ear and was like, hey, this is so contending next year is so like, you know, batshit crazy that it's it's not gonna happen. So I don't know what that is, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that if they're coming around to next year not being a go-for year, then I think it actually could make actually more sense to have Tim Anderson back because either you're just eating the money anyway and he's bad again, or he's good and now you have a great trade asset at the deadline. Like The money only matters, at least from my perspective, if you're trying to compete next year or make enough free agent signings where you have a splashier roster. If next year is not going to be a competitive year, then the fourteen million is is you know less of a factor. The payroll is going to be cut anyway, so that's just my two cents on it. It kind of depends on how next year is going to be viewed internally. Here's my concern on that. The concern is if Tim Anderson's coming back to a team that is fully in rebuild mode, he's not an idiot. Like he's going to see the moves over the offseason. It's going to be like we signed who we did what. And, and we've seen that he almost looks checked out on this team. And I think that's fair for someone who's clearly uber competitive to be on a team that is not competing when they said they were going to compete. I, I completely understand from that perspective. What are you get like, what, what's the benefit to it? I don't think, I just really don't view it from either. It's like, if they're going to compete, is he the right shortstop for it? If they're not going to compete, why not just try and spend that money elsewhere, start of a long-term deal with somebody else? I just think the relationship is not where it used to be necessarily. Just based on the, the on-field you see. I mean, I'm for me to call the eye test, obviously, is a weird one. But it's like, he doesn't look like the same Tim Anderson we've seen. And, and it's fair to question, you know, maybe it's injuries, yes. Maybe it's being checked out, yes. It's like, some guys just need to be somewhere else at a certain point and need a change of scenery and need that change of a new competitive culture. If the Sox are serious about this whole culture change too, it's going to be hard to put in miserable veterans into the locker room because they had, they had that problem this year and they got rid of a lot of those miserable veterans to keep another one. I don't know how that's going to help this culture shift. They're trying to come up with here. I think if the White Sox cared about culture, they wouldn't have hired somebody within their own organization. Correct. Personally. Correct. But um, I, I'm I'm with Nick here, honestly. You know, not that you don't make a lot of good points here, Jordan, but it's asset protection. Genuinely, we if we didn't have an option and we had to sign him to a, a fresh deal, it's a little bit different. But we have the option to keep him around here next year. And, um, you know, I, I understand the idea that Tim Anderson hasn't played great. We watch him play every single day. Not every other baseball team in Major League Baseball does, and a lot of them could probably understand that a fresh start would work out well for him. Um, but I mean, even in 2022, if you look strictly at his stat line, it's it's really still still a lot better than production. Uh, other teams are getting at shortstop unless they have like a star at shortstop, um, you know, or even second base, which has been a 
rumored position for him for a while. I think a team at a, at the trade deadline, if they want to make a run for it, and they see a Tim Anderson even batting like in the two sixty five range, I think would give you a decent little, not not a crazy trade, not what he would demand in a twenty twenty or twenty twenty one, but still a nice enough piece to be worth putting up with him for half a season, even if he is a little checked out. Because even if you explain to Tim Anderson as you're you know taking on his option, um basically explaining to him, listen, Tim, if we're not good by the deadline, we're probably going to move you and you'll have the chance to make life-changing money in a half season with a hopefully competing squad. So basically, like, this is your season to basically show to the rest of baseball why you're worth a good contract. And, you know, that money money talks. And in the podcast that he did this, what was it, at the All-Star break this year, yeah. this past season, he discussed money. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that because Tim honestly has played on a lot lesser of a contract than other players around baseball would, you know, because because the deal that he signed. Um, So I think uh, I I think, Tim, if you talk to him and I think honestly, you know, I just made a joke about the culture of hiring somebody from within the organization. But it it seems like Chris Getz in, in his opening press conference was very respectable about Tim Anderson. Seems like he really respects the person. Um, I think as long as you're honest with Tim about what the plan is, I, I think he can roll with it. If you keep him in the dark and you kind of, you know, act like, yeah, Tim, we're going to compete this year, you know, and we're going to, you know, bring back Mike Clevenger, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you make moves like that. He's going to, he, like you said, Jordan, he's going to see the writing on the wall. But I think, I, I think if you had to sign him to a new contract, that yes, he's as good as gone. But with the way that his option has set up here uh, to bring him back for this last season, I, I just I think it's a no brainer. Just just for the sake of asset, you know, you need to be able to go get something for Tim Anderson in the half season. It's kind of similar to like the, you know, the well, no, I guess it's not completely similar. But like with the Lucas Giolito situation, like it, as nice as it would have been to try to keep him and you know try to bring that as bring you to a new contract we ended up moving him to get anything out of it you know it it was similar to like Lance Lynn I think everybody was kind of wondering about whether we were going to pick up the Lance Lynn option and it was like well no you know we, we we're going to trade him to a team that's just going to take him so I think it's going to be Tim's Tim's turn to take it take that type of route this upcoming season uh whether he has a great attitude about it or not we'll see but you know we could see him get traded as early as the offseason but I, I think just for the sake of asset protection, I'm with you, Nick. I think uh, I think that's somewhere we we almost have to hold on to Tim just just because letting him go for free, even after a bad season, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Would you see? Here's my thing. Here's I I kind of agree with that, and I kind of don't. And for me, it's like I wouldn't sit and sign. I would not sign him to a one year, fourteen million dollar contract this year. I would not personally. I just don't think he's worth that deal. And I get it's a little different because it's an option. But if you look at it from that perspective, I personally would not do that. I would let some other team sign that one-year deal and let him prove it there. That being said, could they do something like they did with Kimbrell, where it's like, you know, it's probably worth picking up the option and trying to trade him even because of the asset piece of it? I could see that too. I, I just... Again, I get back to the original point. Is it a for sure thing that he's going to be in the Sox? He's going to be the starting shortstop next year for the Sox? 
I think it's less sure than it's been in a very long time. Yeah, no, and I think that's I think that's totally fair. I think uh, a lot of people have come to that same realization, you know. And honestly, with the last last year of Tim Anderson, both on and off the field, it's really hard to not come to some type of conclusion uh, like that. But you know, it's it is what it is. You know, that's uh, that's the season that everybody kind of had. You know, I mean, besides uh, Luis Robert, obviously, <laughs> um, everybody's everybody had a pretty tough season and everybody's, you know, it, it, it's miserable on the south side of Chicago when you're losing like this, when you have this much talent, you have this much assets allocated into the team. So it's it's hard to point the blame on one guy, but Tim Anderson does certainly get a, a good share of it. And you can tell it definitely definitely affects him both on and off field. It's going to be an interesting situation to pay attention to. Um. You know, kind of, kind of churning forward. Um, obviously, there were some uh, there were some moves that have, that have happened recently. You know, obviously with the reassignments of Hasler and Johnson, uh, the firing of Boston, which holy crap, that finally happened. That's kind of insane. Um, Castro as well. Uh, Nick, I'll let you kind of start off on this. Uh, does any of this surprise you? Uh, do any of the returnees, you know, seem out of place? How do you feel about the moves that the Sox made out of the season? You know, holding holding people accountable. Yeah, I mean, I like to see accountability. Like that's good, but I am a little surprised by the shuffling of the hitting coaches, just because they were literally just hired or, in Johnson's case, promoted. Um, you know, a year ago, and they're already out. And and don't get me wrong, the team was not did not hit well. I'm not saying that like it's a shock from a performance standpoint, but. One year is not a lot of time for a new set of coaches to come in and implement their philosophies and whatnot. And my issue with Frank Minichino was I had a philosophical disagreement with just the way that he preached to hitters, the things that he that he valued, that he found important about hitting in modern baseball. And frankly, I didn't know that much about Castro other than that he came from Atlanta and the few interviews that I read seemed to be pretty good in my opinion. But I... I just don't know. It's hard for me to say. Like, I don't want to point to the one player who did well because that feels cheap. But at the same time, if you look at the trends from Luis Robert year over year, like his ground ball rate went way down. He he, he got so much better at pulling the ball in the air. The things that we've been, you know, wanting as a fan base for years, and they happened with him. Obviously, not with anyone else. So maybe that's work he did on his own. But I just the cycling of hitting coaches year over year over year. It's just a weird trend. And whoever they hire next for hitting coach you're basically guaranteed that person to be here for more than a year, I would say, because why would you want four hitting coaches in four years? Like that's just not good for any player. I think that's too much mixed messaging. So I I just really hope they nail the next hire because I didn't necessarily think Castro was a problem, but then again, I don't know what he's saying on a daily basis. So maybe, maybe the messaging just wasn't getting to the players. It's a curious one. Kind of like you're saying, Nick, like was the messaging just not getting across and that's why it happened. I think Hassler makes sense. I, I think that's someone just been a White Sox lifer, essentially. And they've reassigned him with a new person in charge. Firing of Boston, Kenny's gone. That makes complete sense. Now it becomes who made the hiring of Jose Castro? Who made the promotion of Chris Johnson decision? Was that purely Rick Hahn and Chris Getch just didn't agree with it and Pedro Grafal didn't agree with it, but he had these guys in mind. Or was it Pedro Grafal deciding, hey, these guys aren't exactly what I wanted and then Getz being okay with it? Like, 
who made those original hires that you turned around and reassigned guys and fired one so quickly? If it was Rakan making that decision, fine, I get it. But then it comes back to something I said on a previous podcast where it's like, you're putting a lot of faith in Pedro Grafal to make the right decisions. You're empowering a guy who has not proven that he should be empowered the way he has yet. Um, and I think that's just where it's kind of like, what, what, what was the logic behind it? What was the logic behind the hirings? And, you know, what are you looking for in the next person? And it's, it's hard. It's hard when you hire a guy from the Braves and it doesn't work to be like, Hey, we'll find somebody better than him. I maybe, I don't know, unless you're going to hire the current hitting coach from another team, taking the assistant hitting coach from Atlanta feels like a really good move. Maybe it just didn't work out in terms of communication. I don't know. That was the one that felt the most odd, but I'm not opposed to any of it. I think the thing everyone will be opposed to is cats returning. And I think Nick, you and I both mentioned it. Once they hired Bannister, that almost felt like a foregone conclusion. They'd work together in San Francisco. Bannister is going to take over the director of pitching role. And he's kind of going to decide what it looks like. And he probably wants someone who he feels comfortable with in there. I think it's an empowerment of cats. You can debate the merits of whether or not that was the right thing to do. I'm still fine with it personally. I think coaches in general get more of a bad rap than they need to. And that's coming from someone who used to blame everything on the hitting coach or everything on the pitching coach. The players need to perform at a certain point and it needs to start at the lower levels. If they're not at that point, it's again, it's like shuffling chairs on the Titanic. Are you making any progress? If these guys just aren't, at a place when they come up to the major league level to make the necessary adjustments. Yeah. I mean, it's, I feel like with the hitting coach, it's going to be a situation that until this team starts hitting, we're just going to continue to throw a uh, spider tech at a baseball and see what sticks. Um, it, it's going to be one of these situations where we're going to continue to try to point blame anywhere besides the core of the plays. Well, at least that's kind of like what Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams were doing. Um, you know, Chris Johnson, I do want to say I'm I'm glad that he's somebody that's getting moved in the organization and they're not, you know, just completely cutting ties with him because I thought he did a pretty good job in AAA for uh, all things considered. Um, I really did like that promotion. It's a shame that didn't end up working out, but uh, he's a guy that I was a big fan of. But, you know, I, I'm I'm with you, Laz, like. If you can't get somebody from the Braves to work out like who do you think you're going to get that's just magically going to come in and, you know, throw his magic wand in the air and the white Sox are going to start hitting, you know, the thing, you know, the thing with coaching is you need to have a certain sense of continuity with these guys as well, even if it's not working, you know, and I think, uh, you know, obviously with how much we hated Frank last year, which, you know, understandably with just kind of where our offense had gone from the year before to then, um, that's that that's a little bit different when you're in this like type of like championship window that we were kind of in there for a second, more like a crack in the wall if, if, if we're being totally honest. But um, you know, with, with where we're at as a as a team right now, we need to really kind of knock it out with this with this next hitting coach. And honestly, if if Grafal does end up panning out and we give him kind of the power to help make this higher, we could just be dealing with another hitting coach 
the next season if Grafal ends up getting fired. So like the White Sox are just in this weird spot with their with their coaching situation. You know, even even with an Ethan Katz, like does Ethan Katz want to hang around for another another manager? You know, I I don't know. You know, and that he's a guy who uh, got a fair bit of criticism this past season as somebody who was a big Ethan Katz guy. Um, I think he, I think he's, you know, he does. It, I think with some of it's warranted. I think some people over focus on what a coach actually does and what a guy actually has to do on a mound. But um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not necessarily surprised. You know, this team's going to try to get a, aggressive in making basically every move except for spending money to try to make this team win and try to make this team turn around. Um, obviously besides firing their manager as well, but, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I just don't, I just don't know who we're going to get out there. That's just going to magically make that much of a difference at a certain point. The guys in the box need to be able to hit the baseball. They need to be able to take walks. They need to be able to have patience. Um, I don't know if they need a coach that speaks, you know, kind of is more within spirit of how, how they are or what the vibe of the locker room is, but it's so hard to get a get a good beat on the vibe of the locker room as it is right now. So I can only imagine trying to coach the White Sox with all the storylines that are already going on with different, you know, players. It's already difficult enough as it is. So it's, it's getting the buy-in in the first place. It's hard for these coaches to do anything if the team's not buying in. And it's hard to look at a team buying in when they just lost a hundred, hundred games this past season. So it's, it's a difficult job for anybody to take on Uh good luck to anybody who wants to take it on next. Um, especially on the hitting side of things. I think you're, you're going to be the most hated person in Chicago every time this team strikes out. So it's uh, it's a pretty difficult spot to be put into. It is. And I think that's where some shuffling of players might, might do better good than shuffling the hitting coach. I think if you're going to pick one organization to look at for somebody to help run the program, I'd go to Baltimore. They are the most vocal, and I'm sure other teams do this. This isn't like break groundbreaking stuff that they do, but there's been a lot of talk about some of the swing decision logs that they have and things like that, that the players have talked about where they get scores and grades based on every pitch they swung at and they took um, in a game following that game. And I think that's the sort of level of information that'd be nice to give to players. I think of guys like Gavin Sheets who swings at balls at his eyes all of the time. And it's almost like, the team's okay with it because sometimes they leave the ballpark. Those would register as even the home runs would register as poor swing decisions from the Baltimore Orioles perspective. Likely it's that sort of retraining of the players who are here, but also finding ways to bring in new guys that maybe Castro wasn't afforded as a hitting coach that hopefully this next guy will be afforded. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I think uh, I think it, it's taking it to that next level, you know, the, the professional level, because like just like you described, Jordan, you'll take guys that are, you know, swinging at bad pitches as long as like whatever just happened with the baseball was good. Um, but obviously, you know, you have you have teams that are really hitting that next step where they're trying to track every single thing that every at bat's doing, even the home runs, because I feel like in coaching around baseball for the longest time as long as it was a home run, they kind of like coaches would ignore it. They, they wouldn't acknowledge it as far as anything besides it was a positive. It was a net positive because we got runs on the board when, you know, you could see some glaring issues with guys that would have a season where they hit like 34 home runs and then they wouldn't crack like 20 for the rest of their career. And it was because they couldn't get a good, a good 
square up on the baseball. So yeah, I really do like what Baltimore is doing. Um, I, I do think about uh, how an Aussie Gain would probably just tear like that type of idea apart, though. Just about like going that extra level because I feel like he's one of those guys that is definitely like, as long as the ball's going over the wall, who cares? But um, yeah, I, it's it's always it's always interesting to hear the commentary during a White Sox game because I think it was uh, I think it was like what three quarters way through the season when we kind of had a little bit of a hitting spurt and they were talking about like hitting in the machine hitting on the machine or whatever after the game or I, I can't remember what what the technology was off the top of my head, but like. Oh, that eye pitch machine. Yes, the eye pitch machine. Where it's like, where this is some groundbreaking thing, and not every player is using it. I'm like, oh my god, where where are we at as an organization? (laughs) That this is just a standard machine that throws different pitches, and you can set it to mimic the arsenal of a pitcher you're facing. That is as routine as it should get. And this is like ground. We wrote not we, but we as a fan base saw and read multiple articles about the powers of this eye pitch machine. And it should just be something that's standard. That's where it's like, so we they are so far behind in terms of hitting. It's like something like that, that, that yeah, every other team's probably got 14 of those lined up in all those cages and they're all using them. Like that, that was so funny. I'm glad you brought that up. I, like as somebody who's a big fan of stand-up comedians, like that had to have been Ozzy's best material all season. Like him just going to town on this eye pitch machine. Like any opportunity he got for like the next two weeks after they brought that out in the media, it was. And it, it was it's great. so stupid. It's just where we're at as a fan base, where we're at as an or they're at as an organization. That number one, it was praised as much as it was. I probably praised it too. You can probably clown me on that one. But the fact that it was praised as much as it was for being something that was so, so standard, but also so hated and so made fun of by so many people. It's like every other team in the playoffs right now probably has all of them lined up right down in their cages and everyone's using them. And we're making fun of it. Like that is where we're at as a fan base. That is like we have to catch up as an organization, as a fan base to modern times. Because we're just going to continue to be the laughing socks if we have the discussions we have over a pitching machine. Oh my God, Duke! Thank you for that. I needed that. That was therapeutic. Wow. No, I, I it was it was one of my favorite parts of the season. You got you got to be able to pick up on stuff like that throughout the course of the year. I, I don't know. It's uh. I feel like it's like if the players in Major League bragged about having a state of the art whirlpool machine. When they were when they're putting the boat engine in there, <laughs> it's like this is just standard stuff, and we're either clowning it or praising it, and it's like, what are we doing? Yeah. Oh God! What no, a I just, I I, th- I think that's why it was so funny it was just because we were so behind the curve. But speaking about being funny and behind the curve and just how how stupid things are. Uh, we need to get to the meat and potatoes this episode, and that is talking talking about our preseason predictions and how these almost all of these aged, like just a fine milk. Um, so when we were, uh, what was this? Like the second episode, I believe that we did this. Um, we discussed the hiring of Pedro Grafal, Pedro Grafal staff on field additions, overall grade guys. You were higher on guys. You were lower on and the team awards like, uh, you know, just, I, 
I've looked through this a couple times and I just can't get over how off base we were. Um, it's brutal. I, and some of it, some of it's fan, some of it's a fan in us, you know, definitely it's like us trying to see the positives. Your mind, our mindset will always be a little bit more positive going into a season than it will be going out. No matter how bad the off season was, that's just kind of the natural optimism you get, especially as baseball, you know, baseball season's getting closer, but Wow. So just starting out here, you know, I'll kind of fire through these, um, but I, I, they're important to talk to talk about Nick. I'll let you start on this one. Uh, the hiring of Pedro Grafal. I gave it a B Jordan gave it a B plus and Nick, you gave it a B, gave it a B plus. How are you feeling about that grade currently? Yeah. I mean, looking back, I actually liked, at least from what I understood, liked the process behind hiring him. It seemed like a real search and everything. And that's a big reason why I gave it a good grade. But yeah, I mean, at, at this point, we've talked about this before, but at this point, I just feel like he's not the guy. And of course, no manager is going to make this 2023 White Sox team a playoff team or anything. But I don't blame him. In fact, I don't even think that he's the worst manager of the last two seasons, which apparently is an unpopular opinion now. But that being said, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, George. It's just everyone going so like, Pedro Grafal gets more flack than anyone. You're right, though. You're right, yeah. and and I don't get it. Yeah, that's why I just think that like, I, I wouldn't give this a B plus anymore. I don't like him. I don't think he's the guy going. I don't think he should be the guy going forward. But he also just a punching bag for everything that went wrong with the season. And while I don't think he's ever going to be a great manager, maybe a better manager who comes in and makes this a 65 win team. Like he wasn't the problem with this season. I'm not. I, this is not me trying to like defend my grade. Like I would probably give it like a D or something now, but. Regardless, I, I've been wanting to say that for a while because I feel like he gets way too much hate, like proportionally to other White Sox coaches or players or whatever. I see people's. I, I feel like, and this is myself included. I feel like I graded on a weird scale where it's like I gave his opening press conference and all that stuff a little bit too much credit. I think that's something a lot of fans fall into. Credit to those who did not. Obviously, that was not everybody. Um. I don't think this whole, it was the Royals guy. Everyone who was like, oh, it's a Royals guy. I don't think that was the right reason to be critical. But also it's like, you have to still grade on, grade on a scale, meaning like, this is a first time manager. There were there were a lot of things he did that I'm like, yeah, that that is a very first time manager type thing to do. Um, not, not making, not, not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's like, did you not see this coming necessarily as a fan base? Personally, this team's not going to be good next year. This team wouldn't have been good if you hired the best manager in baseball. I'm willing to go into next season with a mulligan. Show some growth. Show, show some changes as a manager and go from there. They're committed to him as the guy, whether we like it or not. Show some growth. Show some changes. I'm willing to still give a mulligan, though I would not give a B+. I think I think every time I make a mistake moving forward with my fiance, I'm just gonna tell her that I'm a first year manager because that usually just gives me it gives me a free pass. Because, it, but it's a th- we have had this argument before. It's a thing, dude. <laughs> I like, dude. I get it, and it's it's valid. I'll I'll give it weight, but man, I am so glad I don't have to hear about it anymore. And I'm gonna. I'm going to hear second year manager for the first time. And I'm just going to 
fr- I'm going to freaking lose it. I genuinely, because like that is like, <laughs> I'm writing a note for the first podcast. <laughs> it's the, it's, <laughs> that should be the, that should be the name of our first, our opening day podcast. Second year, man. second year, man, <laughs> <laughs> because like, it's just, it's not that it's wrong. It's, I'm so sick of that excuse. Like, it, it, I get it's, it. You, like, that's the only good excuse there is for him because, like, there are so many th- decisions that he made throughout the course of the year that boggled the mind. We've gone over Pedro Grafal more than enough. We don't need to go super into it or anything like that. I gave it a B. Um, I remember being just a little bit more cynical than you guys, but overall, I liked the direction we were trying to go with the hire. Um, you know, yeah, I could I could make this idea that it was like, yeah, the Royals. Of course, we had to hire somebody from the freaking Royals. But, you know, I, I don't think that's totally fair because he was a part of a, a decent run franchise there for a year or two. So, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll give him that. Um, and it was it was kind of nice with, uh, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about down the line with the signing of Andrew Benintendi. It was nice that we were at least bringing in a coach that uh, kind of was familiar with him why you would make a hire based on one player and think that's a good idea is, you know, one thing, but neither here nor there. All right. So Pedro Gafal staff, um, I gave this an A Jordan gave this an eight minus and Nick, you gave it an A. How are we feeling today? I feel like we can all just say we screwed up and move on. Uh, they fired half the staff. They reassigned the other half and, uh, we're left with, Grafal, we're left with cats. Like, that's it. That's all we're left with. Well, we'll have to regrade this one again because they're picking a whole new staff next year. Yeah, I actually still like Ethan Katz. That also seems to be unpopular, but I do too. At the same time, yeah, no, I know you do, but White Sox Twitter hates him now because apparently you could make a bunch of AAA pitchers good at the major league level. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I'm, I'm with Jordan on this. Like, when we already talked about the staff a bit, so I don't need to go too deep here. But I still am probably higher on them, even the ones who were fired, than I should be. But an A is definitely not the right grade. I, I will always be under the impression that developing pitchers is a marathon, not a race. Um, because the, you get you have to deal with so many different personalities and you have to deal with finding the best abilities that guys have I, and, and this is just we we already talked about the staff for the most part so i don't want to go too detail on that more or less just on ethan katz because i'm still a fan of ethan katz as well um i i don't really understand a lot of that a lot of the hatred that he gets um I, th- I feel like if any coach comes here and succeeds um they they almost get like resentment like being resented by like certain parts of the fan base because it's like oh this fuck this guy oh he, he he's doing so good he thinks he's the man you know what i mean it, it's a weird macho thing but i think ethan katz has done fine um i think he's been making the most out of what he has with him obviously you know you, you look at a guys like michael kopech that you know are still waiting to take their first step um which is a uh, well not the first step, but the next step. And it, it can be really frustrating, but it's it's also, you know, trying to find the best ways to utilize his talent and talent utilization and understanding what he does well and what he doesn't do well. You know, I think, I think a lot of people who don't really pay, like go in depth with pitching, don't understand that it really does take 
a lot. It's not, it's not one of those positions like in football, when you coach the offensive line, like you coach everybody the same. It's like, mm, no, you can't do that. You have to, you have to coach these guys on an individual basis. If you want to get the most out of them, sorry, a little bit of a rant there. Just uh, it's, it's annoying how much, how much crap cats gets um, on field additions. Um, I gave it a C plus uh, mainly because of the Andrew Benatendi move that Nick hated. Uh, Jordan gave it a C and Nick gave it a C minus. How are we feeling about it today? Clevenger was good. That was a good move. The off the field. Again, this is a grade that doesn't involve the off the field. This is an on field additions. Clevenger move was good. Benintendi hasn't been as good much to my and your Duke, um, displeasure. And they didn't do anything else. So it's like, the, the problem, here's the thing, though. The problem really wasn't the on-field additions. It was the ones that they already had. Like, nobody else was good either. Anderson was terrible. Grandal acted like a 34-year-old catcher. The entire rotation stunk. Moncada wasn't healthy. Like, these weren't the on-field additions. It's like, yeah, could they have replaced the entire team with on-field additions? Probably. Would you have thought to do that before the season? Maybe, if you were as cynical as could be. I don't know. I probably wouldn't change this grade. This is exactly what it was. They were mediocre. They covered their holes, and that was about it. I wouldn't change my grade. Yeah, I gave it a C minus, not just because I was lower on Ben Benintendi than you guys, but also because it's like all they did was cover their glaring holes in right field, starting pitcher five, and even second base, they didn't really. I mean, they signed Elvis Andrews at the end, I guess, but that wasn't the most inspiring high upside addition because they were so high on Romy Gonzalez. So that that's kind of why I wanted to see a little more, you know, we had this debate already way earlier on the, in the season, but I wanted to see that Adam Duvall type finishing piece, which would have been really funny because finishing piece to a 60 win team, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they didn't, they did the bare minimum. That's why I gave it a low grade. And that's, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Jordan. These grades are actually pretty fair, even though, other than Clevenger, they didn't play that well, the new additions. It's still probably an accurate reflection of what they did. Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to be my grand defense of Andrew Benintendi, I guess. Um, because, oh, <laughs> because, you know, by, by, by all means, I agree with both of you. Um, you know, we did, we did kind of the bare minimum. It was the typical White Sox offseason. Um, you know, besides the Benintendi signing, you know, that was kind of the big one. Um, I, I think people's expectations of Benintendi are kind of what got a little bit out, out of control because I think they expected him to come in and hit 25, 30 home runs, and that's just not realistic at all if you watch Andrew Benintendi because, you know, his highest home run total was in Boston, and he's a lefty. Maybe connect the dots on that one. Um, but, you know, genuinely, I will I will defend the season that Andrew Benintendi had uh, besides the last month of the season. Like he, he he went ice cold. Like he was not was not very playable the the last month of the season. But honestly, like this team wasn't watchable the last month of the season. I it was it was hard to find anybody who's going to go above and beyond. Um, besides any of that, so it, it's it's kind of tough to uh, really really go that far down the rabbit hole with Benintendi saying that that's an automatically a bad signing. I just think when you when you temper your expectations and you kind of realize the player he's been throughout the course of his career and you kind of understand the player that you were getting with that contract, I think it'll it'll hurt a lot less as the years go on. I think he'll continue to be a solid contributor. I think he's a guy that 
most most baseball teams want an Andrew Benatendi somewhere on their roster. And I think we'll see more of the value once other guys start hitting a little bit better. Um, with that, and I will just I will ignore uh, my Benatendi take on this. But guys, you were, guys, we were higher on the most. This is this is a tough one. Um, mine was Tim Anderson. We discussed him earlier. Jordan, Andrew Benatendi. Obviously, I just went on a little Benatendi rant. And Nick, Yoel Mankata. How are we feeling about that now? The only one that even has a leg to stand on is Nick. And that was that was a yours was kind of like a cop out answer at the time because like he was already fine. People are just lower on him because they don't understand value. Yours was kind of a cop out answer. <laughs> no, I look at some of my and even then it's barely and even the, and even yeah and even then it's like it's barely him because we picked just two terrible options. These these are sad and it's only going to get worse. So stay tuned here. Yeah, I mean if it's a tale as old as time, but if Moncada stays healthy, I feel good about this one still. It's just who knows if that's going to happen. And I understand where you guys were coming from with yours, but I mean all all three of these names, like unless you picked Luis Robert, it, I guess it wouldn't look good. But then again, everyone was high on Luis Robert, so I, I mean most people, so it wouldn't have been the most fair answer anyway. Guys, guys, you were lower on the most. Um, me, Aaron Bummer. Jordan, Michael Kopech, and Nick, Andrew Benatendi. I'd say we were in a solid three for three on this one. Yeah. Unfortunately, like two of those were just terrible all season. So it's like being lower on them ended up being just catastrophically bad. And Benintendi was just league average for the most part. Like, I, I wish Bummer and Kopech could have been a little bit better than just guys we were low on. But that, that yeah, three for three. Pessimism wins, I guess. I don't know. Honestly, that section would have fired off a good segment for me and you to argue to, Jordan, because you're the bummer guy and I'm the Kopech guy. And the fact that we picked each other's guy in that in that realm would have made for a really good argument if both of our guys didn't pitch terribly. Exactly. It's like, well, let's just accept they both sucked and move on. Just a real real waste, real wasted opportunity. <laughs> and and just in general too, like we could have kind of like with players are higher on the most i said oh if we picked robert maybe for lower on same thing you could have picked like anyone on the roster and you might have justified after this season but i mean and, and for ben Intendi, i'll i'm not not to defend him really but i knew everyone knew about the injury the the broken handmade bone before the season and now that's like the what they're running with in the all offseason puff pieces like, oh we'll just wait till it heals up and i get that but my issue with him more is just the defense took such a huge step back and but the, re- the reason why he finished the year with zero war, 0.0. So that's kind of what I want to see next year. I feel like the hand-wrist injury doesn't really affect defense as much. Maybe I'm just ignorant there. So he definitely still has a chance to be worth the contract. It's just I need to see that improve because that's really what you signed him for, the consistently good defender who gets on base. And he, he got on base here and there. He had a couple hot stretches, but the defense was my main issue this year. The defense being that bad <clears throat> with Luis Robert next to him in center field is the odd part. It's like, Robert should just be able to cover that half for you. You should just be able to handle your little area. You're not Eloy Jimenez bad, or you shouldn't have been. But it's like, he ended up being that bad if you look at some of the metrics. So it's it'll be a weird, hopeful bounce back year for him. I think that's one where, I think when you're talking about bounce back candidates, hopefully he's on one of our lists next year. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we just talked about Ben Attendee as a defender. 
Uh, in my team awards, I picked him as a potential top defender, and wow, that aged really bad. Um, but I, I think he can. Hopefully, if if he can get healthy, you know, if that is kind of what was ailing him a little bit in the outfield, that he can be a better outfielder because we we have seen flashes of that in in the past of Andrew Benintendi being very capable in the outfield. So I, I'm hoping we continue to. I'm, I'm hoping with a good full off season, you know, being healthy that, that uh, he can turn that around um, top defender, obviously with you, you two guys, um, Jordan, you picked Luis Robert. Congratulations. Yeah, I cheated. Yeah. I cheated. I'm pretty sure we said that <laughs> on the episode, Nick, you picked your Mankata, which is a, a really safe bet. But as we said before, it's, it's always going to be about the health um, MVP. Me, me and Nick had the same guy, and honestly, I will, I'll defend this take to the end of the earth because once again, it was a situation where he couldn't stay healthy all season. Um, Oloy Jimenez, uh, me and Nick both picked him. Um, I'm still, I'm still high on Oloy. I, st- I still feel like uh, while the power didn't necessarily come, you know, in that late season surge like it did the year before, you still see a lot of good things in the batter's box, and I think, uh, you know, as we said with Yomakata, and as we've said with quite a few players. It's all about health, you know, keeping these guys on the field. Good things will happen, but it's all about keeping them on the field. You know, and I think that's a, that's a difficult part. And that's what's so frustrating about Aloy Jimenez, but he is still my boy. And this is a guy that always sits next to me during the podcast. So I'll defend him to the absolute end of the earth. Um, Cy Young, I picked Michael Kopech, Jordan picked Dylan Cease, Nick picked Lucas Giolito. Um, Giolito wins that one, actually. And he only pitched half the year here. <laughs> I was gonna say after after he left he was awful, but that doesn't count. He wasn't on the White Sox. So. Yeah, no, that's a point in Katz's favor right there. Once he left, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he had a he had a Cleveland Guardians little tenure there for a second. That was a weird second half for Lucas Giolito. I gotta tell you, that was a uh, hit to the ego. Um, he just he also got traded to like the worst possible situation in the second half of the season that I I think you could have the angels basically just sold their entire roster at, at a certain point. So it was, it was wild. Um, rookie of the year. We all picked Oscar Colas. Um, Nick with the incredible quote, quote, who else is it going to be a reliever? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I went back when I put this together, I'm listening to the podcast. I'm like, what, what did we do? Who did we pick? And, and Nick goes, Nick throws in that line. Who else could it possibly be a reliever or someone? And yeah, it was Gregory Santos, probably like a reliever. So, I mean, that's just an all time great line. Usually that feels like something that would come out of my mouth. So I'm glad someone else said it rather than me. <laughs> yeah, it was just too high of expectations, I think. Also, kind of like Nick said, there wasn't really another option on the radar. If he had been anything other than this bad, it probably would have still been Colas. Um, but you go from a guy that everyone's high on to one that you're not even sure is part of the future. And that's uh, that that's a tough, tough fall in the course of a season. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's a discussion we'll have in the off season. Um, I, I think, I think the Oscar Colas project still has another, another chapter or two before uh, the team fully moves on from, especially with how, how we've held our, prospects pretty pretty close to the chest um you know jimmy lambert's a pretty fine example of somebody that we've just been holding on to for dear life and every single year it's like uh it was the jimmy lambert year huh um 
<laughs> reliever of the year. This this is actually my favorite one. So I picked Kendall Graven, Graveman. Jordan, you picked Joe Kelly. Nick, you picked Ronaldo Lopez. None of these players were with us after the deadline. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't know if that actually works in our favor here, considering how bad the entire bullpen was. But, uh, yeah. None of them were particularly good either. Like Joe Kelly had a decent stretch. Ronaldo Lopez had a decent stretch. Graveman had a decent stretch, but no one was good. Like Graveman brought you back Corey Lee, which is not much. Kelly was part of a bigger deal. Um, and Lopez was part of a bigger deal too. It's like, it was just a bunch of, it was exactly what you expected when you got trade or when you traded them. But man, when you had them, it is it is such an argument against heavy bullpen spending when your two or your three actually uh, source cases or use cases are Kendall Graveman, Joe Kelly, Craig Kimbrell. Like it is such an argument against bullpen spending when those are the three guys you can point to as guys that were spent on during this window quote-unquote yeah for sure and it kind of works against me here where for Giolito he was bad after the trade Lopez was like amazing for the Angels and Guardians but doesn't count doesn't count yeah I know (laughs) oh well (laughs) yeah reliever of the year across three baseball teams I don't know man that's uh stuff which also can we finally discuss the fact that Reynaldo Lopez went to the same team as Lucas Giolito for the third freaking time in a row or no fourth fourth time in a row like what what's going on there? Like now now I start to have now I have questions. Like do do they do they share an apartment together? Like are they just uh, I I don't know, man. Maybe they uh, maybe they're brothers that were lost at birth. It's it's something crazy. I will say though, I uh, and I'm showing off all my freaking baseball memorabilia on the camera. But like Joe Kelly guy for life. I know our time was short, but uh, I will uh, I I will say that was the that was the best pulled off trade by Rick Hahn on the way out because he was smart enough to trade him to a team that absolutely adored Joe Kelly. So they gave us a little bit extra than they probably should have considering the season and the recent history that both those players had. So fair play, Rick Hahn golf clap, uh, enjoy sitting at home on the couch next year. Um, but anyway, I think, uh, I think that's a good spot for us to uh, get out of here. We clowned on ourselves, We clowned on the white Sox. Um, that's basically par for the course. Uh, especially with where we are in the season. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have this week for the Sox on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and any real estate podcast. Also, be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th to stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. It's been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We'll be back next week as we cover another exciting time in White Sox baseball. We actually have a really cool project set up, um, basically kind of throwing it back to the off season of 2020 um, and kind of seeing where we go with this team compared to where we actually went. Um, I think we all have some pretty interesting theories about what we would have done um, in these particular situations and some of the decisions that this baseball team made. Um, so it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a really fun episode. It's going to be a good way to close this out for the season, at least, uh, you know, till next time you hear our wonderful voices at some point in the off season. Um, so I'm really excited for that. Also want to say, and you know, as, as the, the noob on this podcast, as a guy who is fresh and, you know, joined this year, 
I want to say, you know, from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate the support we got on this podcast this season. You know, we, we get to see the numbers. We saw the support. Like we, we, we've grown exponentially in this one, this one year with how bad the White Sox have been. So I just want to say, you know, I think I speak for all the guys in this podcast. We really appreciate the support. We really appreciate the listeners. You guys have been absolutely awesome. Anytime we have a fan episode, you guys have poured in the questions. Um, you know, you guys have always been super supportive of the website and really haven't heard anything but great things about what we do over here from everybody. So I really appreciate it. Really appreciate seeing you guys at the ballpark, everything. You know, if you ever see me at a baseball game, don't ever hesitate to walk up and talk White Sox baseball with me. I know, I don't know, I don't know about Nick or Jordan on that one, but um, by, by all means, I, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, with a team that just lost 100 baseball games, we, sh- we shouldn't have seen the numbers that we saw. And we really do appreciate it. With that being said, we'll see you next week. Thank you, and go Sox! Thanks for the support, everyone. Uh, go Sox, yeah, sure. So at some point... <laughs> Yeah, thanks everyone. Hopefully the off season is eventful in a good way. <laughs> Go Sox.